0: I have to tell you about these miniature gum models called goat guns. My guy loves building and collecting them. I was most surprised by the complexity of these models. They're really high quality. His dad and friends always ask about it, and if you ask me, these get a little too much attention around here. Shop for yours at goatguns.com.
1: I'm in conversation today with Ted Brown, one of our most important and formidable elders. He's an activist and changemaker who's been fighting for the rights of black and LGBTQ people for over 50 years. An original member of the Gay Liberation Front, Ted was instrumental in organizing the UK's very first Pride March. He's been at the forefront of campaigns to demand better treatment of LGBTQ people in the media. And he's been a vocal advocate for addressing homophobia within black communities, And racism within the LGBTQ community. Ted and I sat down for a live conversation at UK Black Pride's 2021 virtual Pride celebration to explore the sparks that ignited his activism, our shared connection to Bayard Rustin, what he's learned about love and rage, and his advice to a new generation of activists and changemakers. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Ted Brown. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Josh.
1: Um, The first thing I want to say is thank you. You've done such a remarkable amount of work, often putting yourself in harm's way, um, and it's worth acknowledging that and just saying thank you for all the risks you've taken, for the times you've raised your voice. Um, You're a real trailblazer for all of us, so thank you for doing that.
2: Oh, well, thank you very much. You, you can't see it, but I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I normally ask all of my guests the same question to open our conversation. How's your heart?
2: Well, physically, my heart is, is fine. Um, I think my heartbeat now is around 89. It used to be around 60, resting, when I was doing my yoga. So I'm hoping to get back to that. But emotionally, my heart is filled with the same excitement, apprehension, and anticipation it's always had. And do you have to cultivate that anticipation, that energy? Is it something you actively work to feel? No, I think it just comes from my circumstances, from my background, my parents being involved in the civil rights movement, my experiences coming to Britain in 1959, um, all the things that have happened to me, in the intervening years, and the work that I've done with very many people who I also appreciate and, and feel perhaps needs attention devoted to them too.
1: We have, a, I guess, an icon in common, Bayard Rustin. Um, and I have Bayard's name tattooed on my leg. And when I, I think it was five years ago, I was introduced to his life and work. And like a shock of electricity went through me. I felt like I had finally seen a black blueprint, you know, what I, what I could be and wanted to be. Talk to me about your connection to, to Bayard Rustin and, and the impact he's had on your life and work.
2: Well, my connection to Bayard is one of a mixture of appreciation and frustration because I only found out about Bayard, Bayard's work about 10 years ago And it illustrated to me that one of the most powerful ways of discriminating against people is to ignore them. And I reached the age of 55, 60, before I had heard of this great um, worker for both black and gay rights. Um, And I really resent the fact that many people don't know of his great achievements Um, He was instrumental in organizing the great um, March on Washington, at which Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And I think actually Bayard read the list of demands at the beginning of the march, uh, when they reached Capitol Hill. Yes, yes. But because at the time J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI was trying to undermine the civil rights movement by fabricating a sexual relationship between Bayard and Martin Luther King, Uh, Bayard was bundled into the back of a car and driven away from the um, march that he himself had organized. And this was a result of his being an open gay man Uh, as far back as 1963 you can find him saying that one day LGBT people, although that isn't the term that he used, He said gay people will be fighting for their rights in the same way that uh, black people were fighting for theirs. That shouldn't be underestimated because he was making that statement at a time when the majority of LGBT people, gay people, hadn't even thought of fighting back for our rights. That shows how far ahead he was both in terms of race and in terms of uh, sexual, um, sexual rights.
1: And he was so i, I have his um, there 's a book of his letters, and um, you see him really struggling with his sexuality and with the fact that his sexuality was being used against him, and he thought if that he ruminated on whether he might you know stop sleeping with men, if he would you know not act on his desires in case it would derail the movement, and uh, there 's just all this heartbreak behind this a heartbreaking struggle behind this man who wanted to do so good. And so I'm just
2: grateful he, he pushed through that. Yes. I, I remember seeing those two, and it, it just struck me how committed he was to the movement for black rights, that he was prepared to perhaps sac- sacrifice his own personal uh, happiness in order to help us to progress as black people. But one of the things many people will forget is that he was making this struggle, both in terms of race and in terms of sexuality, at a time when there was hardly any support or backing for him as a black gay man. Uh, It's remarkable that he was able to do what he did. And we should acknowledge him and appreciate him as someone of as great importance as Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks or many of the other people that we now regard as heroes of our movement.
1: And am I right in thinking that your, your mum was also influenced by something Bayard said? So she was very kind of, t- talk to us about how she reacted when you came out. Well,
2: I, a friend of mine at school, I, I realized that I was com- becoming homosexual when I was around 13. There was no other way of referring to it. And when this friend of mine, who I almost was sure had was, was gay, had committed suicide, and I was struggling with it myself, I decided to come out to my mother. Um, I waited two years to do this. I did this when I was 15 in 1965, which is four years before Stonewall. Now, I knew that my mother wouldn't reject me because I knew the kind of person that she was and that she loved me very much. But I was astonished to find that not only was she able to accept my sexuality, but she was able to argue in favor of gay rights because while she was an activist in the civil rights movement, she had by accident heard a number of speeches by Bayard Rustin in which he had twinned black rights, with gay rights, and uh, it was an astonishing revelation to me.
1: I'm thinking of how um, so you come out in 1960, uh, come out in 1965. It's four years before Stonewall, and that part of what happened at Stonewall was the, uh, you know, trans women and, and women black trans women and women of color who were kind of at the forefront of that um, grassroots organizing were actually really well connected to the Black Panther Party. And indeed, Huey Newton came out in in support of um, gay rights. So it seems as if there's always been an understanding that these fights are one
2: and the same or at the very least they overlap. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because that is a very important part of the way that the media and society have undermined both the black and the gay um, rights movement because people are under the impression that the Black Panthers and the civil rights movement was merely a struggle for black rights. But in fact, both organizations were discussing women's rights, workers' rights, uh, the rights of children, a whole diaspora of, of issues um, that they wanted to bring to the fore. And in fact, um, Huey Newton was very influential in indirectly supporting the Black, uh, the Gay Liberation Front in Britain. In 1970, he wrote a, a letter to the revolutionary brothers and sisters stating that, contrary to popular opinion, homosexual people were not enemies, they were in fact um, almost victims of oppression as much or even more than black people, and that many gay people could possibly even be more revolutionary than some black people as a result of that. As a consequence of his letter, he invited both women's groups, gay activists, and others to the Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1970. And two students from the London School of Economics, uh, Bob Millers and Aubrey Walters, two white uh, students, were at that convention and they came back to London and set up a uh, uh, a UK branch of the newly formed Gay Liberation Front on the 13th of October, 1970, at the LSE. As a result, a direct result, of Huey Newton's statement. Wow. And what drew you
1: to the GLF in those days? Like, take us there. How are you feeling? Why the GLF
2: of all the other organizations that were emerging at that time? Well, there weren't any other organizations for gay people at the time. Um, So, um, my response, my invitation and connection to the Gay Liberation Front started indirectly because I was feeling fairly lonely. My mother had died not very long before um, and left me with my younger brother and sister in various um, children's homes. four years later, around uh, 1970, when I was 20 years old, I went to see Hollywood's first movie featuring gay men as the central characters, uh, Boys in the Band. And although the picture had some good points, it showed a couple that were in love with each other, it counted some of the stereotypes, all the men weren't effeminate and weak and insipid, it did have some, prob- some problematical issues, one of which was having the black character, Ben, who was a librarian, allowing the effeminate character to abuse him racially on the grounds that this would make the effeminate man feel better in the crowd because the rest of the group were down on him for being eff- effeminate. Now, this was the film was set in New York in 1968, the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud was a very big um, call and anthem at the time. And I was really angry because I said, there's no way in 1968 that a black, educated black man in New York would allow anyone to racially abuse him. And I left cinema really angry, both at the portrayal of gay men as in general, and, bo- and also this contemptuous attitude to a black character in the movie. Um, I had tried, a year before, I had seen an article in a British newspaper which was uh, making of a facile remark about Stonewall. It said that a number of queens with their handbags were fighting off the police in a bar in New York. And at the time I did cartwheels all around the living room, but I had no way of contacting these people. So it was quite a a delightful surprise upon leaving the uh, boys in the band from the Odeon Leicester Square and to find that a number of people were leafleting against the movie, and they turned out to be from the London, the UK branch of the Gay Liberation Front. A few days later, I hot-footed down to the London School of Economics, and I think I attended what may have been their third ever meeting.
1: And what was the representation of black
2: people within the GLF at that time? It was very small. In fact, um, apart from the embarrassment of walking along the corridors of the LSE asking various students if they knew where the meeting by a bunch of homosexuals was taking place, um, I entered the, the meeting. There may have been around 100 to 150 people in the room. And I wasn't sure whether I was entitled to be there. It may have been just for students. And I only saw three or four other, other black uh, members, um, people attending. And so I actually left that particular meeting. I did go back later on, but I didn't feel that there was enough black representation. And I was aware of that being an issue Because I was born in America, I had seen what had happened to my mother um, in the civil rights movement, I knew what was going on in the States, and I felt that one, one way or another, I was going to make sure that there was going to be some black representation in the GLF. And so I think the fourth meeting I turned up and helped to organize that first meeting. The first march. Uh, Just one other thing too. The first Pride March was held in 1972. But the very first march through central London was in fact a year before 1971. And it was the Gay Liberation Front's youth group protest against the unequal age of consent laws, which had been set up by the Sexual Offences Act 1967. That law meant that gay men had to wait until they were 21 to have sex. And in my particular case, because I was 20 when that law um, was being implemented, um, had I had a a relationship with someone of 19, I would have been registered as a pedophile. Mm. And so we had this first march in 1971, and then um, I a few months later, I got a letter from a friend in Portugal who wanted to meet his partner here. He designed a double pink triangle vase, which we used at the group meetings. And someone slipped in a note saying, it's great that we've had this youth march against the unequal age of consent laws. Why don't we have a pride march next year? And that was what started the first Pride March in 72.
1: And at the beginning, I think there's an important parallel to draw here between the kind of socio-political tumult of the 70s and indeed the, the 80s and our current sociopolitical moment. And I think a lot of people right now might not know how to engage their rage or how best to what the next best step is to take. If you think back to you know, your adolescence, as it were, or your, your new activist, like, what helped you? Like what helped you kind of focus in on
2: what Ted could do? Well, uh, I think almost everybody, if they're feeling uncomfortable about circumstances now, are aware of the way these things impact on them, their friends, their family and society. I remembered my friend from school who committed suicide. I knew what was happening to Bayard Rustin. Um, I had watched on television the demonstrations by people at the civil rights movements as white police officers set dogs on them, uh, fire hoses. Um, brutally beating them in the street and dragging them off to prison. So I had enough motivation to know that one really had to get out and do something about this. Now, sometimes in those circumstances, you're not quite sure what to do. But one fundamental principle always exists, which is to make your voice heard. As long as you can say, this is not acceptable, I'm not going to accept it, this needs change, that is the first step to any kind of action that will change things for the better. No, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, this
1: year's theme for UK Black Pride is love and rage. Yes. And so I'm curious, over the course of your life, what you've learned about love and how would you define it?
2: Well, I think love um, is different for... um, for different people. Some people regard love as being possessive, as owning somebody. But to me, I think love actually means trying to understand somebody, trying to trust them. And there are two types of love, in a way. There's the personal romantic love between you and another individual or several individuals. But there's also the social love. And an indication I would give of that is the social love that was created and encouraged by the cry, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Because for centuries, uh, black people had found themselves in a situation where our pride and our self-worth was undermined. And when that, that cry was used by the Black Panther Party, by James Brown, by Aretha Franklin, to reset people's concepts of themselves. That was a form of self-love that helped move us forward. So there's that political, social love, the same thing that was happening in the women's movement when women said, we are worth the same as men, in some ways, more. And we're not going to take this second-class situation any better. That's self-love of a group. And it's really important in motivating people to achieve the pinnacles of of love, justice, peace, and equality.
1: And it feels as if love is also a kind of civic responsibility. Right? Like, we have to build a world together right and so perhaps this
2: yes yeah i mean i think (laughs) it could be a reach (laughs) you can say it's a reach but (laughs) well i can't consider my myself to be an expert but i will talk about my own personal circumstances i have a photograph at the first pride march of myself with my partner my current partner um john Noel Glynn, and Peter Tatchell at the start of the 1972 march. Now, I had gone to that march, actually, with a black partner uh, named Billy D. He wasn't able to give me his his real name. His family were from Uganda. I think his family were very homophobic. So we went there together um, initially, but he left before the march actually started. But he created a patchwork shirt, which I wore at the march, as a tribute to to the movement. Now, I think I was in love with him. I think he was in love with me, but it was not to be because of his family. At that march, I met John, and we decided that we would get into a relationship. We lived in Uh, um, one of the GLF communes for the best part of three years and during that time we worked out what we wanted our love to be and we wanted our foundations to be trust because if you love somebody one of the things that you have to do is trust them and make yourself vulnerable to them Um, and if you try to be honest People underestimate how how absolutely important that is in a relationship. Um, If you know that your partner, what their partner, sorry, what your partner is saying to you is the truth, it's incredibly valuable. So we decided we would try and be as honest as we could to each other. Um, We decided that we would be open with each other because we weren't having an exclusive relationship, and um, we would take risks with each other. So, I mean, love is a a mixture of strength and vulnerability and honesty and understanding. And risk-taking. And risk-taking, yeah. Which is a beautiful way to think about love. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> but we so I mean uh, we're celebrating what's the nineteen seventy two to now. Unfortunately my partner is um suffering from dementia. But we've been together since nineteen seventy two, so I think some of that uh must must be working. Um I'd say it is. <laughs>
1: okay. I think the most I've done anything is for like a year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what of anger? What of rage? What have you learned about its function, its utility,
2: its usefulness if it has it? Uh, I think anger can, has two sides. If you, focus, if you focus it back on yourself, it can be self-destructive. But constructive anger can be very, very productive. Whenever I'm taking any action as an activist or communicating with other people. I remember what people, before the gay rights movement began, were suffering. I think of things like slavery and the unbelievable brutality that black people have suffered for years. And I use that motivation to say, no matter what you do to me, I'm going to make sure that that kind of brutality is not inflicted on people in the future. And it's that constructive anger going outwards to try and make things better that I think is valuable, right? Uh, The civil rights movement was a movement of constructive rage, and uh, we are all better off for it, all of us, black and white.
1: Busy Being Black we will return in just a moment.
0: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. Today, a conversation with Ted Brown, one of our most important and formidable elders. We sat down for a live conversation as part of UK Black Pride's 2021 virtual pride celebrations. You led a campaign. Um, against The Voice newspaper um, over homophobic articles they had written about Justin Fashionu or homophobic articles they had published more broadly, uh, but particularly about Justin Fashionu. Can you speak more about why it was important for you to intervene and to campaign and, and what, the, what the end result was?
2: I think my motivation for what was happening was because I had seen what the, re- the remarkable achievements of Justin Fashnew. he was f- the first black footballer to be actually worth 100 uh, sorry a million pounds in 1990 he was also the first black footballer the first footballer to come out as gay um, he had been cornered by the Sun newspaper, but he actually decided that he would approach the Voice newspaper because he thought that they would be sympathetic. But unfortunately, the Voice had already, a week or two before, this is the 30th of October, the the issue in which they really slammed into Justin. Previously, in the couple of weeks before, they had done sneering articles about um, Whitney Houston and her friendship with, with Robin um, very, um, sneered also at Michael Jackson hinting that they thought that he was a closet case on that issue they had about nine separate articles slandering or insulting um, black gay, gay people and we thought that this, this was not on and I, I have to say, when I saw how vicious their attack was, I anticipated how bad this would be, because Justin had gone to the black community for support, which wasn't there for him, um, and he was also facing an attack by the Sun newspaper. And I feared how bad it would be, and in fact, as we all probably know, he wound up alone and committing suicide in a garage in the United States as a result of this heaped up abuse. And it's that kind of thing that makes me angry, it's that kind of thing that should make anyone feel fired up to stop this kind of homophobic, racist, and sexist abuse that harms us all.
1: And you managed to get a right of reply in The Voice, is that right?
2: Oh, yes, yes. We, we had a two-page right of reply. We had a year-long campaign. And we formed an organization called uh, Black Amph, which is short for Black, Lesbians and Gays Against Media Homophobia, which was set up by me and my um, best friend, Derg Arb uh, Richards, And we harangued The the Voice newspaper, and particularly their main journalist, Tony Sewell, who had written in that newspaper that he and other heterosexuals were tired of tortured queens running in and out of their closets, and that um, homosexuals are the only group who are prepared to make their sex look dirty. Um, and we felt this kind of journalism was not acceptable. Journalism? journalism. Yeah, journalism. yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> journalism in questions. Um, now, it took 30 years, um, last year, when he was being proposed for the uh, the chair of the Race and culture sorry race and cultural disparities organization. Um, He apologized for his abuse of Justin. Um, There had only been a 30 year (laughs) interim, because it was exposed in The Guardian that he had made these statements. But true to form, he and that organization concluded that there's no structural racism in Britain which I think was characteristic for Mr. Sewell.
1: Well, uh, and they also excluded evidence put forward
2: by black LGBTQ organizations. Yes. And uh, yes, a whole number of other issues, which is uh we're, we're not forgetting and we're not leaving alone right now. <laughs>
1: okay. And this activism, this kind of standing up in the face of harmful media narratives extends to work you did um, regarding buju Banton?
2: Yes, yes. Um, unfortunately, um, I think the Buju Banten incident was one of the worst, most brutal forms of homophobia I've ever come across. Around 1992, uh, we discovered that there was a dance hall record called Boom Bye Bye, and it was sung in a strong patois. It was number one in Jamaica. And the lyrics called for um, lesbians and gays and gay men to be killed, both by using machine guns, but also by tying, burning tires around our necks. Now, this was also being played on the BBC, but they were getting away with it because the majority of people didn't understand what the lyrics were. So me and a couple of other colleagues went and translated the lyrics, and... uh, Publi- publicized the issue, I appeared on the Word um, television program where Shabba Ranks, a colleague of Buju Banton, stated that he supported this abusive and insulting record and claimed that if you forfeit the law of God you deserve a crucifixion, uh, which uh, statement actually ended his career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, Buju Banton appeared on the program stating that controversy sells but then also said "I he apologized for the lyrics he later denied that he had apologized and just recently he's removed most references to the record from online sites um, but this was an extreme example of how actually murderous some of the homophobia could be.
1: I I think about this conversation we have to have all the time as um, black people and people of color, uh, black LGBTQ people and people of color. Our communities seem to be the ones who are always seen as the most homophobic, right? And I think it's a narrative that we have to challenge, right, like there's homophobia in all communities. and so I appreciate you pushing back against... Because what I think you're trying to do is hold a culture to account, right? You're trying to say, we all think our cultures can live up to what they're supposed to be.
2: Oh, yes, yes. I mean, I think it's a mistake to assume that this is unique to, to black or even West Indian culture. It's simply that um, the, the predominant culture, white culture, tends to be a little bit more polite about its behavior. The majority of people who get beaten and killed in Britain at the moment are by white homophobes. Um, it's simply that people like Buju Banton um, are much more outspoken about their prejudice. But we have to remember that it, was up, it wasn't until 1967 that the laws allowed any kind of homosexuality And had you been involved in a gay male relationship before that time, you could have wound up in prison for 14, 15 years. So, um, and that would have been inflicted on you by a very polite and well-educated white judge. Um, And I think that's almost the same as being attacked verbally in, in a pop record. So... Um, also, I've got to remind people that m- the support that we had in Black Amph for fighting against this record came almost exclusively from the black community. Right? It was only a small section of um, the community like Buju Banton and his crowd and uh, the Voice newspaper that behaved in this way. The majority of the black community was as offended as we were by this homophobia.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) Can I just, can I just add? um, Unfortunately, this is one of the things that keeps coming up. Um, Whenever I have been interviewed by white journalists about this issue, instead of asking the much more relevant question, which would be, how do black LGBT people cope with both homophobia and racism? they instead decide to ask whether the black community is more homophobic than the white community, uh, which I think shows where their bias lies. So um, let's be very careful about that and not slander ourselves um, and put ourselves at a disadvantage culturally.
1: And it's like there's also, we're never asked questions about joy, right? And love and... Um, laughter, right? Kevin Quashy has a book, The Sovereignty of Quiet, and he says that blackness, as it's constructed, is always supposed to tell us something about democracy or race or racism, and that in that construction of blackness, we lose uh, what he calls the wild and voluptuous interior lives. And so that's something I notice as well that people don't ask you what makes you happy, and they ask you,
2: How oppressed have you been this week? Yes yeah it's it's a variation we have we have to remember that we live in a culture which is has been based on um racism um suppression of black and brown people um i only recently discovered for example that it was in 2015 that our taxes ceased to pay the slave owners at the end of slavery the slaves got no compensation, but the slave owners got masses of compensation for their, their treatment, uh, their abuse of, of black people. And the Commonwealth itself, to me, is a hierarchy of white at the top, black at the bottom. And it all has a veneer of sophistication and uh, g- generosity and patronage, which effectually keep, effectively keeps us in a secondary position. And we have to be aware of that and challenge it. Would you accept an honor from the Queen? I don't think I would. I th- I don't think I would. Um, I would follow in the steps of, I think it was John Lennon who sent his um, MBE back. I, th- I think, and various other people have refused to accept them because doing so means you're accepting the entire structure um, that exists. And uh, to me, the structure that exists at the moment is not acceptable, not one I want to, to be associated with.
1: Ashe. <laughs> well, we're almost out of time. I've got two questions for you. The first is um, about progress. Um, It's not really a question. I want you to talk about progress, and the nuance of progress, right? We can all look around and see uh, a great deal of work that still needs to be done. How do you think about progress and deal with things not moving as quickly as as we'd all like them to?
2: Well, I try to remain optimistic because it's very easy for people to say, well, we've been fighting this long and we haven't got as far as we should have done. But I have to remind people that only two or three generations ago, things were far, far worse. Um, There's a lot of racism, but today, none of us are having our our children sold underneath our our feet. We're not being whipped and locked up, um, except by the police, of course, (laughs) disproportionately, Um, but simply because Of the racism that exists, Um, we have to keep fighting because things are slowly getting better and one of the things that is significant is that even in a society which is as racist and homophobic as it is, the majority of people know that gay people are not happy with the situation and we need things to get better and that black people know that i was saying things need to be better when i was born in 1950 a lot of that didn't exist the status quo was the status quo and apparently accepted by everyone as far as the media would have have it but now it's everyone knows that change is coming and uh, we're going to get there
1: And my final question for you, Ted, for this conversation. How do we honor your legacy?
2: Well, I've never been asked that before. (laughs) Um, I think the thing to do is to honor the legacy of the people who got us to where we are now. Um, Read up on Bayard Rustin, a man who fought on both the race, and um, sexuality issues at a time when there was no background support. Read up on the mother of, um, oh, the young man who was killed, Mm -hmm. Emmett Till, who kept the coffin open so that people could see the brutality that had been inflicted on her son for supposedly whistling at a white woman. Pay attention to the fact that one of the reasons Rosa Parks sat on the bus as an individual was because she had witnessed what had happened to um, Emmett Till. Um, these individual acts spun off into great movements that brought us step by step closer to our goal of justice and freedom. Um, And in fact, one of the greatest ones I can think of is the young lady who kept her phone, um, uh, George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, for nine minutes and showed people unequivocally the kind of brutality that has been inflicted on us. And for once, a police officer almost got the sentence that he deserved for the brutality that he was flicking on us. And that was one woman deciding that she was gonna to stick to her guns and achieve something on behalf of one of the victims of this vicious brutality. So I'm not sure about my legacy, but think of the legacy of all the people that went before you and those who are alongside you and those who will come in the future. That is the way for, to appreciate a legacy for all of us as human beings.
1: Ted Brown is an activist and changemaker who's been fighting for the rights of black and LGBTQ people for over 50 years. Busy! Busy, 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 Busy. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The Tenth, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music.